Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing, you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. They even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit. It's time to get your problem solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get $15 off your order with code PODCAST15. Summer is here. Pack your bag with sunscreen, your emotional sport water bottle, and that steamy beach read. But wait, don't stop there. This year, there's a new kind of essential that's right at your fingertips. Dipsy is an app full of hundreds of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods, goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut. To explore the bounds of your pleasure, new content is released every week. So in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. Dipsy offers a modern approach to romance through high quality and captivating audio fiction. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to D-I-P-S-E-A stories.com slash pantsuit. Dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. The New Yorker's The Uninhabitable Earth paints a bleak picture of the planet's future. We talk about climate change and children, hope and realism in today's episode. This is Sarah from the left and Beth from the right. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Pantsuit Politics. Today, we're going to discuss an update on Colombia, President Trump's trip to France. And in the suit, we'll talk about climate change and how we should be thinking and talking about our future. And in the heels, as always, we talk about what's on our mind outside of politics. Sarah, I know that you've been following the conflict in Colombia with FARC for some time, and you had an update for us. Yeah, we've talked about this before. We talked about it right after um, the... 
peace negotiation referendum failed. The vote failed. Um, Colombia, for those who don't know, has had a rebel force the, called FARC that's been fighting, I mean, for decades. It's one of the longest running conflicts on the planet. It's a very fascinating, um, sort of study of a society and how they deal with this, how FARC works. I mean, I, I've read a lot of articles and listened to a lot of podcasts about FARC over the years. So it's always, um, this conflict has always sort of interested me. And then peace negotiation has moved forward. But right now it's such an interesting study of sort of reconciliation and how this works. The referendum failed because people did not feel it was hard enough on the rebels. And so, but now they're having conflict because um, the peace deal left um, many of the rebels take amnesty and they were called for the rebels to be released and they haven't been. And some of them are on hunger strike. And so as this plays out, it's just really interesting um, to see how the country works through this, this process. I can't fathom what it must be like, um, sort of the trauma that surrounds it and all these for decades and decades, people being kidnapped and forced to fight and returning to the, like, there's just so much tied up in the history of the country in this conflict that as they sort of negotiate peace and move forward, it's really fascinating to watch. Uh, the daily did an interesting piece and they were talking about how part of what happened is just sort of the rebel generals were getting older and they just sort of didn't want to live in the jungle anymore. I mean, that's, that is, reductive, but it was a generational conflict with, there weren't a lot of, um, of the new generation looking to take over the, the reins of this rebellion and the generals were getting old and, you know, sort of living in the forest and, and fighting in the way they had for decades, I don't think was as appealing. So it was an interesting piece on the daily we'll put in the show notes, but I think that this, that the, the sort of the conflict itself because it played out for so long. And then the way they are negotiating peace and moving forward has been really interesting. Another piece of foreign policy on a much lighter note, but I think still relevant to our discussion happened in France. President Trump visited president Macron in France at president Macron's invitation. And while he was there, he made a remark to Brigitte Macron who I want to say before we talk about this remark is a teacher of French and Latin and literature. She ran for city council in 1989. Uh, she is known as a very important advisor to president Macron. He has said that he would not be able to do anything that he does without her. So this is a very accomplished, thoughtful human being. And president Trump's comment to her was that she was in such good physical shape that it made her beautiful. And it was such a sad moment for me. Well, I said before, I kind of find their relationship interesting generally. Um, and the, and I've talked about Trump in relation to, to that because uh, she was his teacher. Like, no, you know, I have no judgment about, you know, age differences. And particularly if the woman is older, like who cares? But she was his teacher, whatever. And I've said before when they met, like, I'm totally fascinated by what Trump would think about an age difference going the opposite gender. And so for him to comment on her, I, I mean, I just wonder if this is his way of like, comp like making sense of the relationship <laughs> generally. I don't know. I try to stay out of the man's mind too much, but the, my favorite thing that came out of this is Reebok put out this really great thing that said, when is it appropriate? And it's like a little, um, what is it called? Not an infographic. Info yeah, it's an infographic, but it's like a, a flow chart. And so it's like, when is it appropriate to say you're in such good shape? 
beautiful. And it was like, are you in an elevator with a woman? No. Are you a world leader greeting the spouse of head of state? No. Are you introducing yourself to your future mother-in-law? No. And the only one they put yes to was, have you, um, did you just find a forgotten action figure from your youth unscathed after decades in your parents' basement? Yes. Then you could comment on your beauty. This has also come at a very apt time because I got in a con- uh, argument with my dad on Facebook about why he should not be commenting on women's um, choices to wear yoga pants in public. And we had to talk about objectification and what that means and why you should not reduce women to their physical appearance. <sighs> so two things in terms of the relationship, apparently it's the same, the exact same difference ah, between as, Macron, mm-hmm. the Macrons and the Trumps yep. just and reverse genders. And then I found this quote today that I hadn't heard before when I was looking for articles about this. And uh, Brigitte Macron cites the philosopher Montaigne to explain her relationship with Emmanuel. I love this. She said, we rub and polish each other's brains. Yeah, that's amazing. I thought that was amazing, too. I mean, look, I'm not doubting that they have strong connection and they just happened to meet at an opportune time when she was his student or he was her student. But like, I'm sure they, you know, they've, I think they've been together for a while at this point, but there's also, it's the nuanced point, right? Both things can be true. They can have a great intellectual, important relationship. And she should, she was also his teacher and left like her husband and four children. So whatever, both things are true. Life is complicated, but what's not complicated is he should not have said that. So I can hear the people saying, Oh, here come the PC police about this comment. And I've been thinking about that a lot. And here's what occurs to me. Walk with me for a second, because I'm going to talk about something that seems completely unrelated, but in my mind, it is completely related. So this thing comes out over the weekend that he said this to her. It's embarrassing and whatever. Also this weekend, Ann Coulter has an experience on Delta Airlines that is upsetting to her. So upsetting that she has at least 20 tweets at the time of this recording berating Delta Airlines because she had booked an extra seat for herself on the flight, I guess, just to be more comfortable. And Delta gave that seat to another passenger. Hold up. I saw this in passing and I thought it was her seat. You mean she had two seats and she was pitching a temper tantrum about her extra seat? Correct. Holy crap. And it, she has gone on and on. I have never seen such a fit about about airline travel and some truly awful things can happen in airline travel. Like right now, my standard is, do I eventually make it onto a plane and get where I'm going? And that's about it because airline travel is miserable and we should all know this going in. But what I realized in reading all these tweets where Ann Coulter is crushing Delta and its employees, she's taking pictures of people on the flight with her and treating them to over a million followers. I mean, these are just human beings who aren't at fault for what Delta's, you know, business decisions are. And I think that this is so demonstrative of the fact that there is no underlying philosophy here. There is only selfishness in the desire to, without any criticism, just say whatever you damn well please because it feels right to you in the moment. And I think that's what all of her pushback against political correctness is about. And that's what I think all of Donald Trump's pushback about political correctness is about. I understand that he's a 70-year-old person and that his perspective on women is influenced by all kinds of life experiences 
and that he's been around for generations that I haven't been involved into. So it probably takes some effort to not objectify women. Mm-mm. And what he is saying about political correctness is, no, I'm not willing to exercise that effort. Do you know what I mean? No, absolutely. Look, I had this conversation with my stepfather once, and he basically got to the point. My stepfather is a wonderful, generous person. I want to say that first. But he is of a different generation. And he was basically like, it's so much work, and it makes me tired, and I don't want to do it. Like, it just felt like it's sort of this this undercurrent that I hear a lot from older generations, which is, you know, everything's just so hard. Why does everything have to be so hard? Why do I have to sort out all these new sources and figure out who's telling me the truth? And why do I have to think about every single little thing I say and worry about offending somebody? And why do I have to think about every single thing I buy? You know, I just think that there is a complexity of modern life that came around, particularly when we were coming of age, sort of post 9-11 and the technology that that we take for granted, that we cannot understand how burdensome that seems to people who grew up in a different time when things, you know, as sort of silly as it seems were simpler. And so when you tell people, make America great again, I think what they hear is it'll be easier for you. It'll, don't worry. It'll be easier. We don't, we won't have to work as hard to figure out how to get ahead and you won't have to work as hard to figure out what you're supposed to say and what you're not supposed to say. And, you know, don't worry. We'll go back to the good old days when things were simpler and life was easy for you as a certain class and racial group of people. <laughs> I think that's right. And what I want to say is we have such a messed up orientation about that because it sounds like President Trump, don't call this woman beautiful because it offends her. And I can understand how that sounds ridiculous to someone who is of a certain generation. But the the reason to pay attention to your thinking and to start to exercise some more control over your thinking is because it's so enriching to you. Right. All the best things in my life have come from my willingness to change my own behavior, to examine my own thoughts and push myself to go past my most based instincts. And I think that President Trump is just sort of this anti-evolution president. I think the next step for us as humans may have nothing to do with technology. It might be just emotional capacity. I was so geeked out over the dailies episode on sending signals out into outer space this week. And what caught me really short in that episode was this discussion of how like Stephen Hawking and other great scientists have warned against trying to make contact with any life out in the universe because of this fear that if that life is more well-developed than we are, we'll just be consumed. Mm. But that paints a picture of evolution that that is only about increasing our capacity to kill each other. Mm. And I would think that our brains and and the brains of other similar beings are capable of more than just technological advancement, but also we're capable of emotional and spiritual advancement. So I started thinking like, gosh, there could be civilizations out there way more evolved than we are, which would mean they'd welcome the opportunity to work with us, right? Right. That that they would have a completely different, that our violence would seem unthinkable to them because of how far they had evolved. 
And I just, I've kind of gotten myself way down this rabbit hole of looking at President Trump as like a hard no on continuing the progress that our brains are capable of. And it upsets me. Well, and just as a full, let's just take a full uh, tour through the the fathers in my life. I would now like to quote my, my father, my stepfather, now my father-in-law, who always sort of when these conversations come around, his approach is sort of tough. You can't put Pandora back in the box. You don't like the way our society's going? Too bad for you because we don't go backwards. We only go forwards. And... You know, you don't like political correctness and you don't like the acceptance of LGBT and you don't like women's and the increased rights of women. Too bad, because we go forward in a modern society and we don't put Pandora back in the box and you better adapt or get out of the way. And I know it doesn't always feel like a straight shoot. And I think we take some curvy roads, but I do, you know, that's a that's a sort of a more snarky version of what I also subscribe, which is, you know, Martin Luther King's at the arc of the universe is long, but it, it arcs towards justice. And I, I believe that. And I think that is a good transition because I think we'll probably get into that with our next segment. So who's your compliment for the other side, Beth? We saw some bipartisanship this week, which always makes me excited. So I want to compliment Democratic Senators Tom Carper and Clara McCaskill, who are working with Republican Senator Rob Portman. The three of them sent a letter to the Department of Justice asking for an investigation into online sex trafficking which is an issue that I really don't like to think about, but that is incredibly important. So I applaud all three of them for having the focus on an issue like that in the midst of everything else that's happening and working cooperatively toward that end. So I want to compliment Representative Martha McSally from Arizona. She, um, we've talked about her on the show before. She is the one who worked with Aaron Miller to, um, for the changes at Arlington National Cemetery. And she's also done um, some really cool things like suing Donald Roosevelt when he was Secretary of Defense because he would not, the military was requiring women in the U.S. to um, wear very restrictive head-to-toe robes while they were in Saudi Arabia. So she came to the House and stated very sort of simply that she, before I, she yielded the floor back, she said, I want to point out that I'm standing here in my professional attire, which happens to be a sleeveless dress and open-toed shoes. Which, you know, as we've re- seen recently, the Paul Ryan has sort of pushed this dress code. It's been around. He didn't write the dress code. We all know the dress code's been there for a while, but that women shouldn't be um, in sleeveless dresses. And the reporters are getting excluded from places that they're wearing sleeveless dresses. And it's, again, a transition to our next segment in our ever-increasing <laughs> uh, hot planet that seems um, sort of unsustainable. So... Kudos to Martha McSally for sort of pointing that out. Summer is here. Pack your bag with sunscreen, your emotional support water bottle, and that steamy bee treat. But wait, don't stop there. This year, there's a new kind of essential that's right at your fingertips. Dipsy is an app full of hundreds of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods, goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut. To explore the bounds of your pleasure, new content is released every week. So in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. Dipsy offers a modern approach to romance through high quality and captivating audio fiction. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. 
That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year is going by so quickly, and I had a little bit of a moment of panic about it this week. I thought to myself, I'm losing track of time. It's going so fast. It's going to be December before I know it. My kids are growing up, and I just kind of was spinning out. And I stopped, and I closed my eyes, and I pictured my last therapist, who I haven't seen since the end of 2020. But I remember the way he talked me through these issues, and I sort of channeled his energy I put my feet on the ground and thought, this is just how time feels now. And there's nothing wrong with that or right about it. It just is. But those skills that I learned in therapy are so important to helping me take a second to celebrate what's going right and decide what I want to adjust for the rest of the year. If you're thinking of starting therapy, which I cannot recommend enough, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Pantsuit. The second most stressful thing after planning a trip is packing for it. This is true. This is a true story. I have just told you the clothes I have don't fit. They don't go together the way I want them to or I'm missing some essential piece. And then I discovered Quince. It's my go-to for high-quality vacation essentials. Like this premium European linen dress that's going to get us all through the heat wherever we're traveling. Blouses and shorts from $30. Washable silk tops. Premium luggage options and so much more. All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than their similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to all of us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabrics and finishes. I got big plans for my Quince chiffon pleated skirt in Japan. They like a loose, flowy look over there to battle the heat. I will be adopting that strategy with that skirt. Pack your bags with high quality essentials from Quince. Go to quince.com slash pantsuit for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash pantsuit to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash pantsuit. So, are we all going to burn up tomorrow? <laughs> this is the focus of today's pantsuit politics. I'm trying to start it off light because it's not going to stay that way very long. David Wallace Wells says, undoubtedly, yes. Yes. So, in New York Magazine, the uninhabitable earth, famine, economic collapse, a sun that cooks us, what climate change could wreak, and sooner than you think. So, this is a very long, um, very well annotated version of sort of what could play out climate change wise over the next 80 to 100 years. What happens with an increase of 1% temperature? What happens with an increase of 2% temperature? Um, he talks about sort of what hap- what's happening in the oceans. He talks about um, the sort of the what happens to the human body as the temperatures rise. He talks about 
sort of the, what the impact on our food sources. It's very long. I mean, it's got several parts. Um, the really scary part is he talks about what's hiding in the permafrost as it melts and what will happen to our air as the temperatures rises and as the temperature rises. And then sort of, you know, as these situations present themselves, what happens, um, when we're fighting over food, what happens, um, to our economic economy and our markets and, it's just really, uh, really, really upbeat frolic through the future of our planet. He makes the point throughout the article that it's a kind of adorable that we're just focused on sea levels rising mm. when that is really the least of our concerns as the climate continues to change. And he isn't trying to make, I don't think, in any place throughout this piece, a political point. It is more, let us accept the reality of what we've created because our best case scenario is pretty bad. And let us recognize what we still have control over going forward because he's painting a picture of the future if we do nothing. But he also seems to believe that, and scientists he interviewed seem to believe that we are going to be forced to come head to head with this issue before too long. Like we are not going to have the luxury of climate denial much longer. Right. And I think that's accurate. I think that, you know, it's, it's amazing to me that in the face of sort of the temperatures and the droughts and the hurricanes and sort of the extreme weather events that we've been able to maintain this denial. But I think part of the problem and, uh, you know, what this article, the reason I think this article makes you think about this is because he piles all these events in one place where you really have to think, you know, what will this be like? But the problem, I think, and the reason we've been able to maintain our denial for so long is that they don't come all like that. And they most likely won't even come like that if temperatures rise. It's going to be an event here, and then it's going to be some good things, and we'll make some progress, and it's going to be an event here. And so, you know, it's not like... I mean, I guess it is sort of a sustained war where you win some battles and you lose some, but you know, it's just such a hard thing for humans to wrap their mind around. It's not a battle with another set of human beings in which you die, but your kids live. It's when there's no life left. And so it's just, it's such a hard sort of, it, 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 it takes up so much space. It takes up political space. It takes up spiritual space. It takes up psychological and emotional and historical. And you have to put, it's such a big thing to comprehend that an article like this that really forces you to think through it is a difficult exercise for sure. And war is the metaphor that he uses. There's a quote that really jumped out at me. He writes, however sanguine you may have been about the proposition that we have already ravaged the natural world, which we surely have, it is another thing entirely to consider the possibility that we have only provoked it, engineering mm. first in ignorance and then in denial, a climate system that will now go to war with us for many centuries, perhaps until it destroys us. Yeah. And he talks about how we'll come to view natural disasters as weather. Mm. I mean, it's it's harrowing. Yeah. It's a harrowing read. You might want to like have I read yourself it before in the bed. right space. I would like to not it. recommend that. <laughs> I should not have read it before going to sleep, but I did. And the reason I wanted to talk to Beth about it is because it sparked sort of a kind of intense discussion with my husband about, you know, and I'm, sh I, I feel confident that some of our listeners have engaged in this thought process, if not a conversation with a loved one, which is, 
Why do we bring kids into this? Why do we have kids if they're going to burn up? Because I'm embarrassed and ashamed that my first calculus is always, oh my God, well, how old will I be? And there's a part of me that's like, oh, well, I'll be dead before it gets worse. And then I have to think, yeah, I might be, but my kids won't be. And I don't know if that's just a, you know, that's my monkey brain just doing the the things that monkey brains do, which is what, what, how will this affect me? But, you know, I think that it is, you know, this is a conversation that my husband and I have had a lot where he says, you know, we shouldn't have done this. This is so terrible. Our kids are going to have these terrible, um, sort of life experiences because of climate change. We've brought them here. And my thing is always like, yeah, but our kids could invent climate capture, like who or carbon capture, like who knows? And I think that this article is really interesting at the end because he basically says like climate scientists are optimists. They're all people who study this and spend their lives dedicated to it and understand this better than other people are like, we'll figure it out. We have to. I read this against the backdrop of having read a number of tweets and articles about how well our stock market is currently performing. Mm. And it got me thinking about like, why, what really does matter to us? Yeah. And I think that's where you get into why do we have children when the future looks bleak in a number of ways? I mean, there are people who would say that climate change is, for example, a Chinese hoax, who still would say, gosh, the world is getting so much worse. Why bring children into it? I mean, that's a question that uh, plagues the minds of lots of people. But when I think about like the stock market as a chief indicator for Americans of how we're doing, when so few people own stock, I, I get that it has economic ramifications that are very broad, but, but our economy in general, right. As the most important thing to us is something that I haven't spent a lot of time questioning. And I think it's really important to question and something that this article mentions about the economy that has had me really scratching my head is that what the economy has become post industrial revolution is a binge on fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. And that made me think about how my perspective on climate change has has been a lot to just avoid the pseudoscientific debate. To me, the science seems so clear that I'm just not interested in arguing about it. This is how I've always felt about evolution, too. I just don't see a point in debating that with someone because I think it's objective fact. And if someone's not going to be there with me on objective fact, then we're probably not going to work our way to common ground. But if I can say, look, Climate change presents an opportunity for our economy. We can have so much innovation around new technologies and new types of fuel. But like, that's not really the point either. Right. And I think that's something that this really brings me around to. What is the point? There is one. There are lots of points. But what is it? And why are we defaulting to all of these metrics that seem so divorced from like what we're really here to do and be as humans? Well, and here's the thing, too. I don't I think that is a much bigger, bigger question. And what I was thinking about the last few days is how our sort of mental health problems and particularly addiction are indicative of the fact that we really don't help people answer that question. We don't really have answers for people, I think, when they try to answer that question in this society, in modern society. Like I was reading that. Um, did you read the article in the New York Times 
uh, lawyer addict or it's like the lawyer, the addict about the, it was so intense for anybody who hasn't read it. It's this woman's ex-husband, um, was a, he worked like 80 hours a week as an intellectual property attorney in Silicon Valley. And he, um, died of an infection that intravenous drug users commonly get because he was totally addicted. And she talks about like the saddest moment was she realized his last phone call, he was like calling into a conference call as he was like, in and out of consciousness from this infection and he died alone on his floor. It's just really sad. And she just talks about how addiction is a huge problem within the legal community. And, you know, addiction is now the number one killer of Americans under 50 and all these things. And I was just like, I I just got to this, I was reading that article and I just thought, what is wrong with all of us? (laughs) Like, why are people so desperate to get out of this life? Like so desperate to check out and not feel And, you know, our book club right now is reading Tribe, and he has a very interesting um, answer to that, which is basically that modern life is terrible for human beings. And we aren't meant to be alone in our houses or even with our nuclear families um, sort of engaged by ourselves that we're supposed to be outside and with in a tribe moving and engaging and that this that this um tribal instinct that we have is so powerful. And when it's not tapped, it can exercise itself in really ugly ways, which is honestly, I think part of what, um, Jonathan Haidt is saying in the the righteous mind that our tribalism can be a source of such good, but that when not turned correctly, it can be so ugly. And I honestly think sometimes, you know, with climate change that we have, we have, you know, our economy was fueled for a very long time especially the American economy, it was built on the backs of enslaved people. And it's like the second that stopped, we found this other monster to tap that, you know, can we, you know, maybe that this, this idea that, that we fuel our economy this way uh, is not working and is killing us and is killing our planet and not to go off like a super philosophical deep end here, but you know, it is scary, but I think, you know, I don't know that. I don't know the answer. I don't know the solution. Well, I think part of it is that we have reduced our existence to dashboards. Mm. If you are a lawyer, that's billable hours in other professions, it's sales. You know, we could reduce our podcast to downloads. You know, we have developed this culture that says the only things worth anything are measurable. Mm. When all of the answers to the deepest questions are not measurable and involve a lot of ebb and flow. And and it's so interesting to me that in an era in which we've done that in such profound ways, we are now coming around to argue about measurable things like the climate. Mm. And I thought that a lot of what this article explores in such an interesting way is why we're suffering from such denial about what's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he made a list. His sentences are very long, so I'm going to try not to read all of this, but I thought this was such a good list. He talks about um, how there's this scientific reticence among scientists for communicating how dire the threat is. And he says that there are a number of contributing factors. The fact that the country is dominated by technocrats who believe any problem can be solved Mm. and an opposing culture that doesn't even see warming as a problem worth addressing. The way that climate denialism has made scientists even more cautious in offering speculative warnings. 
the simple speed of change and also its slowness, such that we are only seeing effects now of warming from decades past, are uncertainty about uncertainty, which the climate writer Naomi Orisks in particular has suggested stops us from preparing as though anything worse than a median outcome were even possible. Mm -hmm. The way we assume climate change will hit hardest elsewhere, not everywhere, and the smallest and largeness and abstractness of the numbers, the discomfort of considering a problem that is very difficult, if not impossible to solve, the altogether incomprehensible scale of that problem, which amounts to the prospect of our own annihilation and simple fear. But aversion arising from fear is a form of denial, too. Well, a lot to unpack there. (laughs) It's really hard. Like, I think that's true. I think it is. It is so big and it is so hard to think about. You know, it's not like climate change has not been a narrative in my life. I think there was a point that if you told me in college, like that, the the rhetoric was so strong that I thought, well, I'll, it'll be terrible by the time I want to have kids. Like it won't even matter. And now I live in, I'm 36, almost 36. And I look around and I thought, I think I got here so quickly and things don't seem that massively different from when I was, you know, little. And I think maybe that's part of it too, as you age, that the, the time passes so quickly and things sometimes change rapidly, but sometimes don't change at all sort of within your perception. And it's just, you know, it is a, it's a very, very difficult thing to take in. And I try to think, were there times in human history that people felt or understood sort of, a, but there hasn't been a risk on this level. Although maybe if you're, you know, fighting a battle in which a town's going to come out and wipe you out and you don't know about the rest of the world, maybe it felt like that. But you know, what I always say is I'm, I'm glad that my human ancestors continued in the face of the black plague. And I'm glad you know, that in the face of terrible, terrible human atrocities that we kept going. I'm My best friend's father was born in a Holocaust refugee camp. I'm sure as hell glad his mother decided that it was worth it to have kids. And so, you know, it's, I think that there is a drive here that is bigger than all of us when we keep going in the face of sort of existential threats, that there is maybe a part of our brain that's not meant to comprehend how big and how delicate our life on this planet is. And that's not to say that we shouldn't try to move forward and fight it and do everything we can. But I definitely think that the size of the threat is part of the problem. Well, it's interesting that over time, we seem to have become so much less willing to modify our behavior in the face of threats. And I think that's what's the most concerning right now. We're more comfortable than at any time in the history of humanity. And our comfort is what is preventing us from making real progress, right? Mm-hmm. We don't we don't want to recycle because it's inconvenient. Like, I think I've talked about this on the podcast before, this moment I had in Las Vegas when I looked around and just felt so guilty for being a person who went to Las Vegas Mm -hmm. because of all of the waste happening. I mean, it's this adult playground. It's magical and wonderful and crazy and weird in a lot of ways. And it's fun to be there. And I'm not saying that it's wrong to be there. But I did have this overwhelming sense that, like, I'm standing here contributing to problems. Mm -hmm. And that's hard. And that's something that we don't want to do because we live these really comfortable lives where we don't have to confront those kinds of things every day. 
And I was, I was listening to you talk just now, Sarah. I think that is the answer to how to talk to kids about it. The best advice I've ever gotten on parenting was that you should not protect your kids from hard things. Mm-hmm. Well, and I, I think definitely it's, believe that. I think it's right to say this is really hard to think about. So is racism. And so are lots of other things that really plague us as people. You know, as people, we aren't perfect and we're just figuring things out as we go along. But as people, we've solved some really crazy, incredible problems in the past. And we think that this is a problem that can be solved in the future, too. But we all have to participate in that solution. Well, and I think that, um, I, I mean, I definitely know the sensation you're talking about. I will never forget when I started at Transient, I was just a little conservative Baptist girl and I had a political science class and I had literally never heard the term third world before, which is speaks to my high school education. Um, and I remember our, our professor, his name was Dr. Fryman talking about the third world and sort of the cycle of, um, oppression and things that happened between the first world and the third world and being so upset by it all. And I remember going to Walmart and looking around and crying, just crying. I like couldn't get over it. And I went to his office and I remember being like, look, you've made it so I can't go to Walmart without crying. So you need to tell me what to do with all this. (laughs) And that's how I became a liberal, um, sort of in a nutshell. And so I think that, you know, I still have that sensation only now I think you know, the other day I walked in the grocery store and I was looking around at the ridiculous abundance and I thought, I just have a real, I don't know if it's a premonition, if it's just anxiety of like, I'll talk about this one day and I'll talk about how that's how it was because it won't be like that anymore. And I think about that and I think about, I do have a sense that it won't be like this forever. And so there's a sense of, you know, do I just soak it up? You know, do I just say, you know, like, you know, I can't, I can't prevent it totally within my control right now. Do I do what I can? Um, Do I talk to my kids about it? Like the other weekend, Griffin and I were, we were in these little push pat canoes. We were with a bunch of friends on the lake. My friend had this big, beautiful sailboat. We were all hanging off. They were like grilling on their sailboat. I mean, it was ridiculous. And it was just a weekend. It was just a Sunday. And I said, Griffin, this is more of a vacation than most people ever get. And it's just a Sunday for us. And I want you to understand that. And so, you know, I think that there's nothing wrong with teaching children, not only sort of that there are hard things, but that everything is delicate and everything is temporary and that there is a power in that because it means that bad things are temporary, good things are temporary and that's sad, but it also means that in theory, suffering is temporary as well. And so, you know, the delicate nature of all life on this planet, um, sort of is a manifestation of the delicate nature of every moment in our lives, period. And, I do think that there is a part of modern life that fights so hard against that reality that we can build buildings and we can make things permanent and we can build walls and protect and create environments, but that's just not the way it is. And it's not the way it will ever be. And, you know, change and chaos is the law of the universe. And as much as that makes us uncomfortable, it doesn't really matter. And so, 
I guess that that's what I fight against when I say I'm going to have kids anyway, and I'm going to raise kids anyway, because I, I don't believe that I believe everything in that article could happen. I do. I think that climate change, certain terrible repercussions of climate change are most likely inevitable at this point. But I guess what I told Nicholas is like, I I guess there's a part of me that just believes like, you know, that's not, that's not a static reality any more than the one we are right now. Like it's not, it's not just going, climate change is going to happen and everything's going to be terrible and everything. It's, it's all going to be more complicated. Like I said, there'll be good things and bad things and we'll make progress and we'll fall back. It's not like, you know, at certain 2080, everything will be terrible. I don't believe that about human life. I don't believe that about our existences. I think that there is always, um, a complexity or a nuance, I guess you would say, um, situation and reality and, I have to keep moving forward sort of with that, that basis. You had a lot of ands there and I'll throw one more in. (laughs) And, you know, the appreciation of how bleak our future could be because of the way we've treated the planet does not impose on us individually the complete and total responsibility for either either solving that or shutting it down, mm-hmm. which is kind of what you're saying. If you get to this place of, well, I shouldn't have brought other humans into the world because it's so terrible. Well, that's a decision too about the future of the planet. And I think that we can get ourselves into these spaces that are very all or nothing. I was just talking to a friend last night about exercise and we're both like, well, I'm either going to do nothing or I'm going to run marathons. <laughs> and like, that's not how it has to be. <laughs> And I think that's not how it has to be with climate change. Like, you can read an article like this and step back and think, wow, like, we need to ask ourselves some serious questions and get involved here. But we also need to recognize none of us have to individually figure this out. And there are going to be people who have these great ideas, lots of them, right, working individually and in concert. And this is a it is a problem that impacts all of us. And it's a problem that all of us um, need to be thoughtful about, but that doesn't mean that your life needs to stop in the face of this kind of information, which I think is an instinct that a lot of us have to kind of fight against. I mean, spoiler alert, that's basically the plot of S down the podcast. Just saying that dude could not coexist with the idea of climate change and the havoc it could wreak on the planet. The other thing I wanted to say is in our in our deep conversations as often comes up Richard Rohr's email today. I don't know if you've read it yet, but he co- he quotes David Benner and he says, belief is conviction of the trustworthiness of a proposition. Faith on the other hand can never be reduced to beliefs or thoughts. Beliefs are often simple, simply objects of attachment that provide a misleading sense of certainty. Faith welcomes unknowing and mystery. And I read that and I thought that's it for me. I believe that climate change is happening and I believe that there will be, devastation and destruction and much suffering because climate change is happening. And I have faith in humanity and I believe sort of in the mystery of the human race and that we will move forward. And I don't know what that means, but there's a lot of mystery wrapped up into that. And I think that there is like sort of a whole universe of mystery contained within the human race, everyone that's come before us and everyone that will come after us. And I, you know, I have faith in that. And 
though I believe in the objective reality of climate change, that doesn't, those, they're separate for me. Earth Breeze Eco Sheets look just like a dryer sheet, but it's ultra concentrated, liquidless laundry detergent. It's the best of all worlds. Earth Breeze is tough on stains and odors while being kind to the planet and your skin. So it's good for sensitive skin. It reduces plastic waste. All of these things are true and amazing, but let's get to the heart of it. Y'all know I have a laundry system. You know it revolves around training children as young as possible to do their own laundry. Earth Breeze sheets feels like they were invented for this. Because littles maybe sometimes struggle with those big, heavy jugs. Or maybe you worry about the pods, but here we go. Here we go, y'all. Earth Breeze Eco Sheets. It's like the perfect solution. A child as young as two can handle these sheets. And even with toddlers, like you can get them involved. And this is a way to get them helping with laundry even before they could do it themselves. Ugh, gotta love it so much. Right now, our listeners can receive 40% off Earth Breeze just by going to earthbreeze.com slash pantsuit. That's earthbreeze.com slash pantsuit to cut out single-use plastic in your laundry room and claim 40% off your subscription. earthbreeze.com slash pantsuit. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing, you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. They even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit. It's time to get your problem solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get $15 off your order with code PODCAST15. We do quite a bit of hosting here at the Silvers household, and I think there is nothing that completes a table for dinner. Like a beautiful loaf of bread and wild grain has made that so simple because they send gorgeous loaves of sourdough bread. Lots of spins on the ingredients, but always just this fantastic, high quality, easy to bake in 25 minutes or less from frozen bread that turns out perfectly every single time. I also have to tell you about the free croissants for life that come with your wild grain orders. And those croissants make the morning, your brunch, maybe your late night snack, flaky and like you're sitting in a French cafe and they're just perfect every single time. That's what I love about Wild Grain. It's easy, it's consistent, it's fully customizable. It is the first ever Bake From Frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. For a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. You heard me, free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. And I think, you know, if you are a person who's listening to this and thinking like, oh, for Christ's sake, with the alarmism and (laughs) I mean, you know, ridiculous. Okay, that's cool. And we can we can hold space for people to feel that way. 
I guess my question is, are there not lots of good reasons to be good stewards of the planet that we're occupying? Are there not lots of good reasons to just reduce what we consume and use? Are there not lots of good reasons to place less emphasis on materialism generally? Mm-hmm. And I think the answer to those questions is yes. And it reminds me of another really good piece of advice I got this week. I was talking to someone who has just been through it this year. Like if you were writing a movie and put all the things that have happened to this person in the plot, the editor would be like, no, that's it's not too believable. Much. No. <laughs> And this person said, you know, people say to me constantly, how can I help? And the truest answer is just don't do anything that makes it worse for me. Word. Just don't create more problems for me to solve. And I think that is a good place to be in on climate change, too. If this is not your thing, you don't want to think about it. You can't think about it. You think it is bullshit. OK, let's just work on not making it worse. Yeah, that's a good place to start. Yeah, because I think like back to the sort of where we're at as a human race, I don't think that culture is serving anybody. I don't think if maybe there are people that think, you know what, more McMansions will make America a better place. Maybe there are. And you do you. But I think for the majority of Americans, there's been a real, especially since the recession, sort of in a looking around and being like, does this serve us? Are we happier? I mean, there's not a, there's a reason that minimalism and there's like 50 million tiny home documentaries on Netflix. Like we're clearly having sort of a conversation about this as a culture. And I think it's an important one about whether consumption for consumption's sake is a good thing. I know my answer. And so it's a really hard question though. Like I started thinking about, you know, we just went to London and on that trip the whole time I thought, gosh, we have got to travel more because it is so enriching to travel. Then I read something about the carbon emissions of a flight from the United States to London. And I think, shoot, we should not travel. Like, <laughs> you know, it's, it's hard. It, when you start, it's easy to start talking about consumption in the abstract. And when you start talking about specific life choices and specific behaviors and again, like what really matters, it's, it's not an obvious thing to figure out how to grapple with this information. I don't know. I look back at, and I'm talking about when I guess when I say consumption, I have a certain sort of section of the consumption spectrum that I'm talking about. And like, come on, I'm talking about when uh, my Sweet 16 on MTV was sort of at peak popularity. Like, can we just, we can all agree that's dumb. Like, you know, there is there are parts of consumption that are worth it and that we can have a conversation about. But like $60,000 sweet 16 parties are not one of them. I think that our culture just got sort of even encapsulated by the sort of Kardashian craze and that we just we like reached this peak. I feel like where everybody was like being rich and famous. And remember when there was like the Instagram feed of the rich kids cutting cake with iPads? I mean, we we reached peak. We hit a peak. We jumped the shark as a society. And I hope that that we're sort of over that and it can be more realistic and thoughtful about how we consume and what we consume and the the cost it has. Because I definitely think that there was a zenith at which it got really, really dumb. I hope that we can back away from really, really dumb. And I think that's probably a good note to wrap up on goals. Back (laughs) away from really, really dumb. Yeah. So what are you thinking about this week, Beth, besides politics? 
you know, in, in keeping with the theme of simplicity as greatness, I did a lot of cooking this weekend and I really enjoyed it. When I go for long periods without spending much time in my kitchen and I come back to it, I always am so grateful that that's something that my mother gave me as a thing to kind of sink into and enjoy. So I made a tomato pie for the first Mm. time with tomatoes from my mother-in-law's garden. I have finally learned to make pie crust, which kind of, I made a pie crust for the first time, but it was not good. So you're gonna have to give me some tips. Well, I'm going to send you a recipe then. The New York Times has an all butter crust recipe that is easy and flaky and delicious. I cannot use shortening. I just can't. Mm -mm. I know that is not very Southern of me, but I feel much better about an all butter crust. And this one is really, really good. So I'll send that to you. I made um, a chocolate chip cookie cake because Jane wanted to make cookies and I didn't want to be dealing with batches in and out of the oven for hours. So we compromised on a cake. Um, I made pickles for the first time. Oh, my I husband is a, a biggle. Biggle. <laughs> I just made that word up. He's a big pickle person. He loves to make pickles. He's growing cu- cucumbers right now. Yeah. They, these were cucumbers from my mother-in-law's garden, too. She's the kind of person who can, like, put a stick in the ground and have a flowering bush a week later, which I admire very much and do not have that skill set. So it's been – I love the summer because she sends us so much food. So cooking has been on my mind. What about you? Okay, this is going to be really funny. So, uh, eating has been on my mind, but (laughs) perfect. (laughs) No, well, it's the funny part is sort of the opposite end of the spectrum. So I have got uh, a few pounds from Felix that Felix is two. So they need to go. He, uh, it's been plenty of time. And I just thought, like, I was talking to my friends. I think I talked about this on the podcast that I have some friends who were like, sort of, we're not health obsessed. We're just health interested. And we were talking about like blood sugar. I got a blood sugar monitor. I was like checking my blood sugar and thinking about all these things. And I thought, how am I going to really pay attention to my weight if I'm not paying attention to what I'm eating and how much I weigh? So I got myself a fancy ass Wi-Fi scale because nothing motivates me more than tracking. I love to track. I love to track everything. I like missed my scale while I was away this weekend. I was like, oh, I hate that I can't get up and weigh myself on my fancy new scale. And I started writing, get it, doing an app again and putting in all my, what I eat and the calories and all that stuff. Not because I think calorie counting is the end all be all because I don't think all calories are equal. In fact, I had this, I'm so embarrassed to admit this. So when my little calorie counter will do, it'll do like protein, fat and carbs. And again, I don't think this is the key to everything. I'm a big Michael Pollan person, like just eat food. Don't get obsessed with the stuff. But I was like looking at my calories and I thought, wait, why didn't I get near enough protein? How could I possibly, I can't eat more calories. How am I going to get protein? I'm like, oh my God, Sarah, you have to eat better, more protein driven calories. Like, I, I don't know. I guess I just not had that, that thought process of like, not all food is equal. You need to eat better food if you want that the results to come out better on the end and like never put them all, all the pieces together in my brain, which I'm kind of embarrassed about. But you know, it's so eye opening to write down what you eat every day and sort of keep up with it. And I'm proud of myself. I made good choices. My new thing with sugar, if there's like something I want to eat, like for instance, that chocolate chip cake you were just talking about, I just take one bite because this is another Michael Pollan thing I read once, which was he asked people for food rolls and they said the first bite is always the best bite, which is totally true. And there's so often that I'll eat something. I'm like, this is amazing. And I don't remember eating the rest of it. So I just take a bite and it's actually working out pretty good. I feel, I don't feel like I'm depriving myself. I get to enjoy things, but I'm not, you know, mindlessly gobbling down an entire chocolate sundae. So, so far, so good. It's really made me more thoughtful about what I'm eating. I'm pretty proud of myself for that. I'm, and it came about largely because over July 4th weekend, I just ate like crap and I felt like crap. And 
as much as I thought when I was younger, like, I'm going to get older and your body will like wear a callus and you can just like sort of abuse it and it doesn't matter. Oh, newsflash to all you youngins in the crowd. Not like that. Your body gets more sensitive as you get older, which is real crap. And so I'm just trying to just tighten it up, tightening it up. I'm reading um, Hidden Riches right now about the importance of ritual in life. Oh, I love ritual. And it's kind of making me think through, how do I want to approach this? Because I do not have enough um, focus on the care of my physical body right Mm. now. And so I've been thinking about how do I want to approach this? I hate tracking things. Oh, I do I not want to write it. anything down. I despise it. I feel so strangled by that. If you so watch more sad documentaries, you would probably like to track things like I do. Maybe they're related. Maybe there's a correlation. <laughs> Maybe. I'm just not. I'm not into that. But I do like the idea of ritual and I like the idea of some things I do every day or I do them this way or I think of eating as a ritual that has a certain kind of spiritual dimension. So that's where my head is going. But I mean, I'll let you know when I finish the book. Well, and here's the other thing, too. When you the reason I like tracking is it's just sort of increased awareness, right? You sort of just pay attention to it and you notice things like I I guess I just never would have put that together about the calories again. Embarrassed to admit. But the other thing is like when you're tracking your food like that, you just you realize you, you pay more attention to like when you do sit down and you eat something and you prepare it and you sit down and eat it. Like you can't help but be more aware of like how much better you feel and how much you more you enjoy the experience. Or like when you do sort of quote unquote splurge and eat something sort of out there, like you're going to do it on something good. You're not going to do it on Domino's pizza. You know what I mean? I love Domino's well, like, pizza. Here's no, what I think it is. No meanness. Here's what Domino's. I think it is about tracking. Like I think there are people who find that super motivating and informative, and that's a really healthy perspective. And then I think there are people like me who anytime there is this quantitative measurement of something, when we don't hit whatever mark we're aiming for, we make that mean I'm a bad person Mm, or I'm a failure, right? Or I can't do this, so I should give up. So it's kind of getting back to that discussion we were just having in the suit of like finding a healthy balance. <laughs> and so for me, I, I don't think know, it yeah, is. And I don't know where I got that, but I am really capable of like totally being into something, loving tracking it. Like, but I don't, it's really weird. Like, it's like, I just like the process. So I don't have hardcore goals in mind. Like I want to try to try to do it every day. But if I miss a day, it, like I don't, I don't go down that rabbit hole. And I don't really know why. I don't think my mom was a big guilter. Not to say your mother was, um, but like, I don't have, my mom also had a really great relationship with her body growing up. So I was very lucky to witness something healthy along those lines. But like, I just, yeah, it's really weird. I'll have a day where I'm like, well, I'm not going to do it today. But then the next day I'm like, especially because I like starting over. So like, if I have a crappy Sunday, I'm like, Ooh, tomorrow's Monday. I've, I've confessed my love of beginnings on the show. And so it's always a chance for like, I guess I, instead of seeing it like as a failure, I'm like, oh, but it's a new beginning, a new chance to try again every time in my head. So I don't really go down that rabbit hole as much as I know people do for sure. I love that. And this is another thing I want to learn from you. And until <laughs> I do fully, I'm going to take care of myself by not doing things that will make me crazy. And you just go and watch the most depressing documentary you can find tonight. I'm telling you, it's my secret. You have depressed me enough for two weeks with this article on climate change, so I'm going to give it a rest for now. So thank you all for joining us for another episode of Pantsy Politics. We have a new executive producer, Sabrina. Thank you so much, Sabrina, for your support of Pantsy Politics. And thank you also to Sarah's husband, Nicholas, Tracy, and Leslie. You can follow us on social media, leave a review on the Apple Podcast app. 
and or contribute to Patreon. We're trying to add lots of extra content over on Patreon. We're really excited about our bonus episode this month. Patreon.com forward slash Pantsuit Politics, or you can click become a supporter on our website. Until Friday's episode, keep it nuanced, y'all. 